Would you pray with me? God, we praise you that you are our God when times are good and when times are bad, you are the same. In the night, in the pain, in the suffering, you are still God, worthy of all our worship or our trust. Help us never to doubt your goodness, to doubt you. Grow our faith even in the night. God, be with me as I open your word and proclaim it to your people that they would hear it once again and be transformed, growing more and more holy and more like you, God, that we would all leave here changed and have a, a burning desire to share this good news of your son with others and that we would live our lives differently because of our belief, which marks true belief. God, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Guide us by your spirit. Uh, open our eyes to it. Let us see you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of Matthew as we're journeying to the cross, following Jesus to the cross. And today we'll be in Matthew 23, starting in verse 33. Matthew 23, 33. And the title of today's message is Endure to the End. And the key word today will be save. I know a couple people have been asking me, where's the key word been at for the past couple weeks? So it's coming back. Key word of the day is save. Save. Endure to the end. If I were to ask you, what are some things that you've endured? You might say, I've endured a, 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 a Thanksgiving meal with in-laws. <laughs> or I've endured a workout. Or I've endured a race. Or maybe more serious, some of you say, I've endured childbirth. Or I endured watching my wife give childbirth. Endured a sickness or a disease. All these things brought some level of pain. And with pain comes the temptation to give up, to just walk out, to leave, to compromise your beliefs, to compromise what you said you would do before you entered this situation or the, before the situation came before you. To compromise your faith, to compromise your trust in God. Today, Jesus wants, us, wants to prepare us to endure, to endure in our faith. He wants to prepare us to endure in our faith and love for him no matter what we face. No matter what comes, earthquakes, persecution, famines, false prophets, false messiahs. He wants, to be, he wants us to make sure that we're ready for when these things happen. He wants us to endure in our faith. And our love for him, no matter what. And in today's message, will be broken up into four main sections. First, we'll see God is a God of compassion, even amid destruction. Compassion amid destruction. Second, we, we see that he does not want us to be deceived. He does not want us to be deceived. Third, he does not want us to fear. And fourth, finally, he wants us to keep the faith. So first, we'll look at God's compassion amid destruction, starting in verse 33 from last week. Jesus continues from last week talking to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, the supposed religious leaders of the day. 
but they've rejected him as the Messiah. They have turned against God in the flesh, and they're planning to kill the Messiah. They're planning to kill Jesus. And because of this, last week we saw that Jesus says to them, how can you escape being condemned to hell? They have not repented of their sins. They have rejected him as the Savior. How can you escape your condemnation? And despite this, despite their rejection, Jesus continues in verse 34 with compassion. My remote seems to be messing up, so you might have to click through the verses on there for me. So verse 34 says, This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them, uh, some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues and and pursue from town to town. So we see the compassion of God. Despite their repeated rebellion against him, Jesus repeatedly sends them hope. He sends them scribes, those who knew the law of God and actually taught it rightly. And it's, it's notice here, who's sending them? Jesus. Jesus is God himself, able to send these people to them. And in his compassion, he sends these sages, those who have wisdom, those who rightly pointed to God, those faithful people of God, those prophets, Jesus is sending them. Even though they will kill and crucify Jesus, the Son of God, God is so gracious and compassionate, not wanting any to perish. He continues to send out the good news of hope over and over again. But how do they respond to God's compassion? How do they respond to God's grace? They will treat them just like they treat Jesus, by killing, crucifying, flogging, that is, intense whipping, very painful. And notice where they are flogging them. They're flogging them in their synagogues. That's the place where they were to worship God. But instead, they're persecuting God's prophets in their place of worship. And they're even pursuing them from town to town. Because of their consistent rebellion against God, against God's grace and compassion, Jesus says in verse 35, So all the righteous blood shed on earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So like last week, we saw that those who reject Jesus and his messengers are like those who rejected and killed God's people in the Old Testament. And their rejection and killing of Jesus is the ultimate, the culmination, the pinnacle of rebellion against God, the killing of his son. And thus, the, their judgment will be worst of all. It is their, their hands will be guilty of all those murdered in the Old Testament. It was to show how much judgment is on them. That he mentions Abel, all the way from Genesis chapter 4, who was righteous and he was wrongfully killed. All the way to Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 24, who was wrongfully killed. The judgment of God will rain down heavy on those who rejected and killed the Messiah. As Jesus says in verse 36, He says, truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. This statement will be key to our understanding of this, the next couple verses as well, because we see Jesus' focus is on the scribes, the Pharisees, and the present generation for their rejection of the Messiah. Even still, we continue to see the grace and compassion of God as Jesus continues in verse 37. 
He cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Though God is a God of justice and he will rightfully account for sin and evil, he's a God of compassion and grace. He, Jesus likens him, his desire to a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. That is the God we serve who says, even though you've rejected me, even though you've killed my prophets, even though you're going to kill me and you have evil in your heart, I want you to be back. I want to gather you. I want to protect you. But they weren't willing. God was willing to save them, but they weren't willing to bow the knee before him. They were not willing to accept his salvation. They were not willing to humble themselves, not willing to trust in God as their ultimate protector, as their ultimate savior to come under his wings. They were not willing to trust in Jesus as their God and King. And because they were not willing to repent and trust in him, Jesus says in verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. In other words, Jesus says, because you've rejected God, your house is empty. Your house is desolate. And what is their house? It's the temple of God. It should have been the temple of God. It should have been God's house, but they turned it into their house because they made it a den of robbers. So even though they had the city of Jerusalem, God's chosen city, even though they had the physical temple where God was supposed to dwell, it was all just outward appearances because inside it was empty, just like their hearts were far from God. They did, not have, they did not follow God. With, they, they, they sung the praises of God on their lips, but their hearts were far from God. So was their temple. Their temple may look nice and clean and holy, but it was desolate. It was empty. God's spirit was not there. And despite these hard truths of judgment, we again see God offer hope to those who rebel against him. Verse 39, he says, I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now he offers hope. He says, even though you don't have the spirit of God in your temple, it is desolate, it is empty. There's a chance that you can see the spirit of God again, but you have to recognize that it's me, that I'm God in the flesh. Jesus is not talking about literal sight here because the scribes of Pharisees will continue to see Jesus physically all the way to his crucifixion and make sure that he dies. But what he's wanting them to see is to see him spiritually, to see who he is, that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that he is who the people said, Hosanna, praise God, save us, Jesus. Until they see Jesus for who he is, they won't have the spirit within them. They won't have the the special dwelling of God in the temple of their body until they see Jesus for who he is. And this this offer is, again, available to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want the presence of God back among you, I am the presence of God. I am God. I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Seeing Jesus this this way will not leave their house desolate or empty. But if you see Jesus this way, he will fill you with his spirit. Your body is a temple and he will fill you, give you a new heart. You won't be empty any longer. This kind of compassion and grace is available for us today as well. 
Again, God is a God of justice and will rightly take care of evil and sin. But Jesus also compares himself to being compassionate, a protecting like a mother hen for her chicks. The only question is, are you willing? Are you willing to see Jesus for who he is as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God? And if you don't see Jesus for who he is, just like the Pharisees were left desolate and faced with judgment, so will we. As Jesus goes on to detail some of this coming judgment for the people's rejection of him in Matthew 24, starting in verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So here's the the image of the disciples looking at the magnificent outward appearance of the temple. And they're saying, look how great it is. And Jesus says, this is going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled to the ground. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, they may have looked good on the outside, but they were facing judgment. So will the physical temple. As Jesus said, because of the rejection of God and his Messiah, their, their house was already empty. God was not there They made the temple into a den of robbers. So God will show them that his special presence is no longer there by destroying it. It will be totally destroyed. Not one stone will be stacked on another. It will be flattened to the ground. This prediction came true in AD 70. At the end of the Jewish war against Rome, the temple was burned. Even its foundations were dug up. After hearing this, his disciples have some questions. Verse 3, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? It is like human nature. We always want to know when, right? When is this going to happen, Jesus? And this is a pretty straightforward question. When will the destruction of the temple happen? We would say about 40 years. It would have happened about 40 years, AD 70. That would be a simple answer. But they complicate things because their second question is this. They go on to say, And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because for them, it was unthinkable that the temple of God could be destroyed. They said, if the temple of God is destroyed, it must be the end times. It must be the end of the age, and you must be returning in judgment. Thus, in Jesus' answer, since they asked two questions back to back, it is somewhat difficult to decipher which part of his answer refers to the temple in which part of his answer refers to the second coming and the end times. Now, there's many people that think it's only one or the other, that Jesus is only talking about the destruction of the temple. Some people think he's only going to be talking about the future times. Some people think it's a combination of both, depending on what verse he starts where. I'm more in the camp of a combination. And for this week, for this Sunday, for, uh, for today's passages, it seems that he's going to be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. First, and then next week he'll be talking about his second coming in the end times. So that can, that'll kind of give us a, a little roadmap that I think because of the context, like he said, this judgment is going to come on this generation. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees who rejected him. A lot of this destruction language in today's verses will be about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Which moves us into our second point. We need not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Because even though a lot of these things will have happened already for Jerusalem, there are many applications for us today. Because Jesus will focus on their response to these hardships. 
And it will apply to the same for us today to, to respond in being alert, being ready to keep the faith no matter what comes, as they did in these verses. So starting in verse 4 of Matthew 24, do not be deceived. Because Jesus replied to them, he's replying to their questions about the, the destruction of Jerusalem and perhaps the end times we'll see. So Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. It is people will be coming and they say, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. Look to me. I've returned. And many will actually be tricked by them. These false messiahs are even mentioned in the book of Acts. So we see Jesus' prediction come true even in the New Testament scriptures. We have three false messiahs mentioned. uh, Thutis in Acts 5, Judas the Galilean in Acts 5.37, and the Egyptian in Acts 21.38. So the best way to spot a fake is to know the original. I've heard that is how they train people to spot counterfeit money and counterfeit artwork. They know and have studied the original piece to such a degree that they are able to spot the slightest difference at first glance of the fake. It's kind of like those cartoon picture games, spot the difference between the two cartoons, right? You could memorize every detail in one image, then when you look at the other, you could immediately spot the difference. It's the same with Jesus and those who claim to be the Messiah. We need to know the original so that we aren't deceived. We need to study God's word. We need to learn who Jesus is and what he has said and what will happen so we won't be deceived. Not only will false messiahs come and deceive people, let's jump down to verse 11. Others will come as well. It says in verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So these false prophets will promote these false messiahs. They will say, yes, he is the Messiah. Look, I can show you this verse out of context. They will teach things contrary to God's word. They will, maybe, they will probably be very, very smart and be able to explain the Greek and Hebrew and all these, all these great things. They probably know more scripture than many of us. That's it. We must know the truth so we can detect the lies, so we can pick out the lies. So when the people are deceived by these false prophets, they fall away from following Jesus. And it leads to something else as well. As Jesus says in verse 12, he says, Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. So faced with persecution for following Jesus and the law of God, many will take the easy route of rejecting Jesus and rejecting the law. That is what lawlessness means. It is in living in contrary to the God's law. Thus, lawlessness will multiply. That is, people will not live according to God's word because their love of Jesus will grow cold. At one point, their love and devotion to Jesus was on fire. They were passionate about following him. But when faced with an easier alternative, many people's love and passion for Jesus will have been shown to being only skin deep a superficial commitment to Jesus. Well, this might seem like the easy way because you get to do whatever your heart desires. You have no restrictions. You can avoid pain. You can avoid persecution. But this decision to do that values temporary pleasure over eternal consequences. Because although it can be painful to follow Jesus in a world that is against you, it comes with an eternal promise. 
Not only should we not be deceived and tricked because Jesus has warned us. He does not want us to be caught off guard. and He does not want us to be afraid when these things come. Jump back to verse 6. It says, do not fear. In the third section, do not fear, verse 6. It says, you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. Man, if you thought today's times were bad, listen to what the early church faced in the first century. This is from uh, Dr. Quarles' commentary on Matthew. has a lot of good historical insights here. He says, Political upheaval within the Roman Empire would dramatically increase in the decade leading up to the devastation of Jerusalem. Here's just a couple points. In June of 68... Nero was tried by the Roman Senate and condemned to death as a public enemy. He promptly committed suicide. This led to the famous year of the four emperors in which Galba, Otho, Vitellus, and Vespian ruled briefly as emperors in rapid succession after assassination or suicide of their predecessor in a single year. Can you imagine? We have an election every four years and it seems pretty bad. This was four emperors by death in one year. How much war and devastation, chaos is going on in the first century? Even through all that, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. God's still in control. Even though it seems like chaos, Jesus says these things must happen. And even still, the end is not yet. That is, the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem is not yet here. He goes on to say in verse 7, For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. One such famine would impact the entire Roman world with its greatest severity would be felt in Judea. We see that in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. An earthquake occurred at the moment of Jesus' death. Likely uh, people thought of this warning of the earthquake at Jesus' death in Matthew 27, 51. Severe earthquakes in the Mediterranean world would devastate cities such as Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea in AD 60, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and Nurkirai in AD 62. And despite all the pain, all the sufferings that these caused, famines, earthquakes, in verse 8, Jesus says, all these events are the beginning of labor pains. These are just the beginning of labor pains. And I can give you eyewitness testimony that the beginning of labor is way less painful than the end of labor. Jesus says those earthquakes, those famines are just the beginning. The end and the fall of Jerusalem will be way worse. So when these things started to happen to his disciples, they could go back to Jesus's words and say, I remember that he said this would happen. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be alarmed. We can trust him. This is in his hands. They can point, to, they can point others to Jesus' words and, and look and say, hey, repent of your sin. This is a warning from Jesus. Have faith in him. The same is true for us. No matter how bad the world looks, no matter the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, God is still good and he sits on his throne. We don't need to be alarmed. We don't need to fear. We need to be ready for persecution. We need to be ready for wars. We need to be ready for earthquakes and famines. I read this 
somewhat funny story about a man from Louisiana, and it stuck out to me because it was from Louisiana, and his name was obviously Boudreaux. And a Louisiana game warden had been tracking Boudreaux because of his, he was an infamous Cajun poacher who's doing some illegal activity, as Boudreaux is known to do. Late one night, the game warden stumbled upon the criminal's cabin, and he climbed up on the roof, and the game warden waited for dawn, hoping to jump the poacher as he emerged from his house. The game warden stayed up all night waiting for him to come out, and then at breakfast, he smelled bacon and Boudreaux's brewing coffee, and then to his surprise, Boudreaux came to the door and yelled, hey, game warden, you might as well come down I have some bre- and have some breakfast with me. The game warden said, how did he know I was up here? He goes down there, and he has breakfast with Boudreaux. He's like, how did you know? He goes, I didn't know. I just say that every morning when I wake up. I figure you're going to be there at some point. He was not surprised. Neither should we when we are faced with war, persecution, earthquake. But we should wake up each day and say, hello, world. I'm ready. What's for breakfast today? It may not be what I want, but I know that God's still good, that he loves me, that he's in control. So Jesus warns us to be ready, to be always ready, and to keep the faith in the midst of persecution. As we turn to our final section, keep the faith, starting in verse 9. It says, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Jesus has warned his disciples before that they will be persecuted. Just as he persecuted and killed the prophets in the Old Testament and will even kill him. Darkness hates the light and will do anything to try to put the light out. Jesus does not promise his disciples then, and by extension his disciples now, that life would be easy. He does not promise an easy life in which everyone will love us and like us. For the simple reason of believing in Jesus and following him, people may hate you for that and even kill you. It is, it is even recorded that some of Jesus' closest disciples were killed for their faith in him. James, the son of Zebedee, uh, during the reign of Nero, James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, Peter, countless others were executed. The persecution will be so intense, Jesus says in verse 10, many will fall away. They will betray one another and hate one another. Because of the persecution, they will deny Jesus publicly in effort to escape that persecution, or even turn other Christians in into the authorities and actually turn to hate those whom they once said they loved. Many of us cannot even begin to imagine the persecution of our brothers and sisters historically and around the world presently today. Someone may look at us wrong and we fall to pieces. How can we prepare ourselves to keep the faith in the midst of that kind of persecution? Three ways that we can prepare. One, we need to be aware of the possibility of persecution. We don't need to be caught off guard. We don't need to, if, if, if you are following Jesus, you, don't th- you cannot think that life is going to be easy from here on out. You need to be aware of the possibility of persecution. Second, you need to be firm in your theology of God before persecution comes. Know that God loves you and that he is in control no matter what. You need to be firm on that theology. 
Third, following Jesus and being faithful to him is worth it. No matter what comes, no matter how much pain and hardship comes, following Jesus and staying faithful is worth it. Now, if we are preparing to be faithful in the midst of being tortured to death, that should make following Jesus in a relatively peaceful environment, such as the one we're in, be put into proper perspective. Let us not take the freedoms we have for granted. Use the opportunity God has given us this time and in this place to live fruitfully on mission for him. Because in peacetime, it can be easy to get lazy. It can be easy to pick fights among ourselves. We need to remember that there is always a spiritual war going on. We need to be on guard on our hearts from lazy, superficial Christianity. Because if we can't follow Jesus when it's easy, how in the world do we expect to follow him when it's not? Jesus calls us to endure no matter what. Verse 13 says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, Jesus doesn't promise to make our lives easy, but he calls us to endure, to keep our faith in him, to keep our love for God strong and on fire, to follow Jesus and his commands, even when we might be persecuted for doing so. And endurance is worth it because we will have eternal salvation. Because even though we will face pain and suffering in this life, that's only temporary. It is so short in comparison to eternal life. This promise of salvation is what motivates us to endure. We must keep our eyes up, looking forward, continue to trust in the promises of Jesus. And so three ways that can help us endure. Three things to help us endure. First, endure through dependence on God in prayer. Endure through dependence on God in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. It will only be by God's grace and mercy that when persecution comes, we can endure. We need to pray for his mercy and grace for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Second, endure through the church. Endure through the church. Because we are a family here for one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. You need your church family, and your church family needs you to help us all endure. God did not intend us to be alone in this journey. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. And finally, number three, endure by looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 1. He says, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Because of Jesus, his work on the cross, we can be saved and endure in faith. And this good news of salvation will be proclaimed, as Jesus says back in verse 14. He says, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus predicts that the good news of salvation will go out to the the world before the destruction of the temple. 
Because the term world here referred to a region contained in the Roman Empire. You can see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And the civilizations that lay just beyond the imperial borders. So when it says the, 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 it, the, it would be proclaimed in all the world, he's referring to all the known world in the Roman Empire. Paul repeatedly insists that the gospel had been proclaimed throughout the entire world during his ministry. Uh, you can see this in Romans 1, verse 8, and then we'll read Colossians 1, 5 here. Colossians 1, 5, Paul says this. He says, You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. He says, That has come to you, and is being, uh, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. It is, the gospel has went out all over the world before the destruction of the temple came. So even through persecution, famine, earthquakes, the good news went, all, went out. God actually uses the persecution to spread the good news message. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And then in verse 4, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Because they were scattered, because of the persecution, it forced them to go out. And the word went with them. The good news went with them. What people meant for evil, God used for good. We must follow their example. By the grace of God, cling to the compassion of God. We don't need to be deceived. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be caught off guard. We need to endure to the end. We need to keep the faith and part of being faithful is proclaiming this message, this, giving this good news that we have heard, giving it to others until Jesus returns. Let us pray. God, thank you for warning us. Thank you for not letting us be off, caught off guard but that you have been honest and said this, it's, life is going to be tough from natural causes, from persecution, to, to, to sin in the world, to people sinning against us. God, help us endure to the end. Help us be a church that we can join arm in arm with our brothers and sisters and we can cross the finish line together. When one lacks in faith, we can encourage them. We can give them a word. We can, we can point them to your past faithfulness, your past promises that you've kept true. And we can say, his promises are true. God is good. He is with you. He loves you no matter what's going on. If you don't know what's going to happen, it's okay. God does. God, help that be our prayer. Help that be our mission. By your grace, let us endure to the end and be saved. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. And I'll be down at the front if anyone would like to pray or if you've never accepted Jesus as your God, Savior, King, I'd love to talk to you about that more during this time or after the service.